Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash art of man, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you ever been burned by somebody because they told you an outright lie? It can happen to your personal or business life. You're on cloud nine, your girlfriend tells you she loves you, only to find out later she's been cheating on you for months. The client says their business is solvent, but they end up bankrupt and you lose a ton of money on the account. Wouldn't it be great to avoid these situations by being able to tell right then and there if someone is lying to you? Well, my guest today has spent his career in the CIA sussing out deceptive behavior and developed a system to help other agents know when someone is lying or telling the truth. His name is Michael Floyd. And Besides being a former CIA agent, he's also co-author of the book Spy the Lie. On today's show, Michael dispels some myths about lie detection. Like, for example, there's really no such thing as lie detection. Rather, Michael argues you should focus on behavioral and verbal cues that suggest someone is deceiving you. And when you see those cues, to investigate further. He then walks us through the system he used during his career as a CIA agent and now as a corporate consultant to flush out liars. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash spy the lie. Michael joins me now via ClearCast. Michael Floyd, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brett. It's good to be here. So you wrote a book along with your co-authors called Spy the Lie. It's about, well, kind of debunking some of the myths about lie detection, and we'll get into that a little bit. But before we do, let's get, your background's really interesting. What's your background that led you to write this book about how to figure out if someone's lying to you? Well, it goes back to 1972, straight out of college, undergraduate school. I went into the uh, Army military police. I went through officer basic training in Fort Gordon, Georgia, where the original government polygraph school was. And that, that piqued my interest. When I got out of the military, I ended up in Chicago at a company called John Reed and Associates to get my Master of Science degree in Detection of Deception. When I graduated, they invited me to join the staff. I was with them for six years and then was ultimately recruited to the CIA doing similar work and then on to NSA, the National Security Agency. And uh, I left the government in 1989 to go to law school. And then out of law school in 1992, I started a polygraph business with an office in San Francisco and Los Angeles. I did that for 10 years and then reunited with a very good friend from CIA, a guy by the name of Phil Houston, a co-author of our book, Spy the Lie. And we are now on our second business entity called 
Q Verity. And so we are still in the world of uh, collecting information for for clients. And so is Q Verity similar to what you've done before, it's deception or deception detection? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Q Verity is a company that uses this proven information gathering methodologies that we developed within the U.S. intelligence community now for commercial applications. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about this idea of deception detection or human being a human lie detector. Is there such a thing as being a you know a human lie detector? Unfortunately, there's not. But we we, we feel that our methodology cer- certainly is is the best out there for doing this. But the reason there's really no such thing as a human lie detector is, you know, we're, we're not mind readers. So our, our methodology is uh, designed to uncover what we call clusters of behavior. And I can get into that a little more deeply later. But when we interview somebody and we identify these these clusters of what we think are deceptive behaviors, it's incumbent upon us as interviewers to drill down, ask follow-up questions to see if we can get at the reason for the concern that, that the person's exhibiting uh, through the behaviors we're assessing. And I think it's also important to note, as you highlight in the book, that polygraph tests aren't really lie detection tests. They give you information that allows the polygraph examiner to you know, say follow up on this, but they don't actually detect lies. That, that, that's exactly right. Uh, it, it, it's more of a, a, a think machine. And, and so, I mean, why is it hard, so hard to know if someone's lying? I mean, what are some of the biases that we have? Uh, I mean, obviously, we can't read people's mind. That's the big thing. But what are some other factors that cause us to be deceived? Well, this really gets into the, uh, the, the, the model itself, what we call the model that was developed. The primary developer of this was Phil Houston at, at the agency, it's all predicated on cause and effect. If we don't know the cause of the behavior, we simply can't assess it. We, we're trying to get people out of the world of, of speculation, of guessing, uh, gut instincts, having a hunch, and, and using a codified model with, with two rules. First rule is the timing rule, which says that the first deceptive indicator must occur within the first five seconds of the stimulus, and the stimulus in our world is the question. And so we wanna make sure that if we are seeing deceptive behavior, it's because of our question and, and not some unrelated thing. So it, it, it's cause and effect is, is, is really what we're looking for, 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 for the deceptive behaviors. Gotcha. And I mean, uh, so there's timing and clusters. We'll get into that a little bit, like some of the behavior things we should be looking for. But another important factor or principle in the system you guys have developed is you guys said that in order to spy the lie, you have to ignore truthful behavior, which seems sort of counterintuitive. Can you explain that a little bit? Why it's why you have to ignore the truth in order to spy the lie? Well, it it it, it to to be to be effective at the de- Detecting deception, obviously you first have to understand what deception looks and sounds like and then have a systematic and objective approach so that your attention is focused exactly where it needs to be focused. And back back in the day when I was trained, we, we were taught to look for both truthful and untruthful behavior. And then almost as a scale of justice, 
way does the truthful behavior outweigh the untruthful behavior? And if so, we would arrive at a, an opinion of, of no deception indicated. Uh, but what we discovered, what, what Phil discovered, was that truthful behavior is easily imitated and replicated. If, if you were accused of doing a bad thing and wanted to be successful in deceiving the interviewer about your involvement, you think about the kinds of behaviors that you think somebody might be paying attention to, things like good eye contact, sitting with an open posture, being friendly, developing some rapport with the interviewer, just generally appearing to be very cooperative. These are things that can easily be imitated and replicated. You know, it, it, it's not rocket science uh, to give people good eye contact and sit with an open posture. And so it, it's it's easy for someone to present truthful behavior, even though they're not telling the truth. Another danger is what we call the halo effect. People don't necessarily lie to all the questions. They may tell the truth to easily verifiable information and then lull us into thinking, well, if they're telling the truth about the things that we know are truthful, that therefore they must be telling the truth about everything else. So that, that that's another reason. And then also the a, a bias element creeps into this truthful behavior process. We will, as interviewers, often we, we will see what we want or expect to see. So if we go into that interview believing that the person's probably going to be telling us the truth, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where we're we're now seeing truthful behavior, which leads us to believe that the person must be truthful. So what we do is we just simply ignore truthful behavior. And uh, by doing that, it really cuts our workload in half as interviewers. So now all we have to do is look and listen for deceptive indicators and tune out this whole process of looking for truthful behavior. And so it, it just it makes the detection of deception process much more streamlined and much more focused. Uh, if, if you think about going to a, a doctor for your annual physical, the doctor gives you a series of diagnostic tests. And if those diagnostic tests come back without any indicators of ill health, the doctor infers from the absence of those negative health symptoms that you are in good health. Our detection of deception model follows the same medical model in that as we probe with our surgically designed questions during an interview, if there is an absence of deceptive indicators, we infer truthfulness from the absence of deceptive indicators. I don't know if this is making any sense to you or not. No, yet, it, no but, it makes perfect but, sense. But, but that, that's exactly how we do it. So it, if, if there's an absence of deceptive indicators, an absence of what we call clusters of deceptive indicators, we infer from that truthfulness. So I, so as this cuts down on your, as you say, your bandwidth, right? You're only focusing on deception. I'm sure it does take a bit of time to get over that bias of looking at the truth, right? And just ignoring it. It does. And in our training, in fact, in the book, Spy the Lie, 
we, we talk about the obstacles in detecting deception. And one of the major obstacles is what we call this tendency to believe. We're, we're all guilty of it. it, it it's just endemic in our society. It's the way we've been raised to see the best in people, to accept things at face value. You're, you're innocent until proven guilty. And so uh, as an interviewer, if you go into the interview with, with that tendency to believe mindset, the deceptive person will use this as a weapon against us and they'll take advantage. So we encourage people to go into to the interview not with cynicism, but rather what we would call professional skepticism, where we're, we're not necessarily accepting things at face value. It's a much more clinical, objective, systematic approach to, to that interview setting. So you mentioned earlier that we're looking for timing and clusters. Timing is, uh, if there's any indicator after the stimulus, which is your question, within five seconds of asking that, then there's clusters. We'll talk about some of the different clusters uh, or some of the different types of behavior, but how many of these different behaviors or ticks that you see should be near each other for you to say, yeah, that's probably, he's probably lying to us as opposed to if there's just one or two, you think, well, maybe he's not lying to us. How do you, how many, is there like a, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, a minimum amount of behaviors you need to see before you say that's a cluster? Exactly. And that, that's the, the, the cluster rule says that we have to have a minimum of two deceptive indicators in response to that single question. So if, if you think of an interview as a, a Q&A, you go from one question to the next question and so on. Each question and answer is a separate mini examination, if you will. These deceptive indicators are not cumulative from one question to the next. So I ask you a question, uh, where were you last night? And in that response, I see two or more deceptive indicators. And this can be a combination of both verbal and nonverbal indicators. In response to that question, I infer from that, I infer from the two or more deceptive indicators in your response that you have a problem with that question. Now, this is why we're not human lie detectors. I'm, I, I can't read your mind, but I do know from your, your bad behavior that that question has stimulated concern or that you have concern or uncertainty uh, in, in that information you just provided to me. Now, it could be that you're just flat out lying to me. And that's why I saw those those indicators. But it could also mean that you 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 have a problem. You may lack confidence in what information you just provided, or you may be uncertain about the information you just provided. So what I do then is I typically will follow up with with an a, another question and drill down to see does that concern go away? Does your answer, does your response make sense? Or as I continue to probe and drill down, do those clusters of deceptive behavior remain? And uh, the more I ask you about this, the worse your behavior becomes. And now I know I'm probably on to something quite significant. So we, we use this model really, think of it as a 
a compass that guides us through that interview process. It, it leads the way or, or a Geiger counter or mining for nuggets of, of uh, information. And, and so as I probe with my questions and observe behaviors, uh, the interview now becomes a very dynamic process rather than just a list of prepared questions, the interview now goes where your behavior goes. So it's not just a list of questions. It's a very dynamic think on your feet process that I'm guided by behaviors I'm getting from you. So um, this sounds like it's hard because on the one hand, you have to ignore truth, but then also you have to, you have to both watch and listen, right? To deception at the same time. And that's, that's hard. So how do you do that? How do you both observe and observe for deceptive behavior and listen for deceptive, you know, communication? Well, it, 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 it's difficult. It takes, it takes awareness. It takes training. It takes experience and, and a, a great deal of focus and concentration during the interview. Our brains have a dominance. The, the brain wants to either be in auditory mode or, or visual mode. If our brain is, is in auditory mode and we're simply listening for deceptive verbal indicators, we're, we're very likely to miss deceptive nonverbal indicators. If our dominance is, is visual, then we're going to be, of course, catching the deceptive nonverbal indicators, but now missing the deceptive verbal indicators. So we call this process L-squared mode, where we train our brain to fight that dominance of either visual or auditory and try to both look and listen for deceptive indicators at the same time. And it, it's, it's easier said than done. Uh, so pe- people can actually practice this simply watching investigative news shows or when they see a celebrity, a politician, someone in the news who's been accused of doing something wrong, being asked questions about that, go, you know, go into L-squared mode and both look and listen for deceptive verbal and nonverbal indicators. And, and the more you do it, the better you get. Well, there's a lot of that going on right now. So lots of opportunities to practice, I guess. Yes, yes um, there are. Yeah. Let's talk about verbal communication, um, deceptive verbal communication. What are some verbal cues that indicate that someone might be lying? So we're in, we're focused in on their words. What are some things that people say that often tell that there might be deceiving you? Well, uh, something you might find interesting, Brett, uh, since we published that book, Spy the Lie, we have now, when we do our live training, we have taken the deceptive verbal and nonverbal indicators and actually put these now into what we call five distinct psychological buckets. It, it's much easier for people to remember the behaviors and, and also understand the behaviors because they now know the psychology behind the deceptive indicators that they're uh, both hearing and observing. So the, the, the five buckets, uh, well, the first four buckets really uh, encompass the deceptive verbal indicators. And then the last psychological bucket uh, encapsulates what we would call the deceptive nonverbal indicators. So uh, if, if I may, let me just give you the first four psychological verbal 
buckets. The first bucket is what we call evasion. These would be the evasion deceptive indicators. Think of the evasion behaviors as linguistic acts of concealment. Uh, An example of the evasion bucket would be failure to answer the question or uh, failure to deny a a question. With, With truthful people, the facts are the ally. The facts are their friend. The facts make them feel comfortable. They're not afraid to touch, talk about uh, the facts. So if you're telling the truth, your first mission really is to deliver that message to the person who's answering or who's who's asking you the questions because the, the facts help you. So you're eager to get that out. On the other hand, if you're not telling the truth, the tendency is to evade and and not answer questions or or not deny. And so that's that's why we then see those behaviors in the evasion buckets. So um, let's get into that nonverbal. Okay. What's what's that? That would be, we call those the reaction behaviors. These reaction behaviors uh, are, are triggered by the autonomic nervous system. When, when you're, question creates a spike of anxiety. It's the fight-flight thing that we've all studied in school. That anxiety has to leak out. It has to go somewhere because I know there are consequences associated with my lie being detected. That makes me feel anxious. And so the anxiety leaks out through this uncontrolled body language. Things like hand-to-face activity, grooming gestures, what we call anchor point movements, you know, the shifting in the chair, the bobbing of a foot, you know, uh, curling hair, adjusting jewelry, wiping imaginary lint off a desk or off clothing, picking or pinching of, of clothing. Again, remember, all of these indicators are in direct response to the question. Now, one of the reasons people get into so much trouble when they try to detect deception is they are relying on behaviors they don't know the cause of. Some, some of the more common misconceptions would be something like posture. We, we've all read that closed posture, for example, is a negative indicator. Well, when you think about closed posture, for example, somebody sitting with their arms folded can we really, with any degree of reliability, understand or know with certainty why that person's sitting that way? Why are they sitting with their arms folded? It may be habit. They may be cold. So we're simply guessing. So we don't use posture as a deceptive indicator. If someone is extremely nervous during that engagement, during that interview, we're we're simply guessing why they might be nervous. People have been taught that people are nervous because they're lying. Well, we know that truthful people can be very nervous during an interview. So we're, we're trying to take the guesswork out of it. Since we don't know the cause of the nervousness or the cause of the posture, we, we don't evaluate that. And then the final major misconception is eye contact. For generations, people have been taught 
that if someone gives you bad eye contact, they're, they're hiding or concealing or lying. We now know through research that people who are deceiving actually often have better eye contact than someone who is telling the truth. So we don't use eye contact either as a uh, indicator of deception. Also, as I said before, it's easy to to sit with an open posture if you're lying. It's easy to give someone good eye contact if you're lying. It's easy to appear relaxed if you're lying. So we, we just stay away from those. So, so getting back to this reaction bucket, the nonverbal indicators, uh, we're, we're simply looking for movements and, and physical changes that people do in response to our question. And, and we count these then as deceptive indicators. And again, you're looking for a cluster. You want to look for that reactionary behavior with maybe one of those verbal this verbal cues connected within five seconds of that stimulus. Exactly. Uh, another verbal bucket is what we call the persuasion bucket. The, these are the behaviors that people exhibit that are aimed at convincing you of something rather than conveying information that you're asking for. For example, if you were accused of stealing money and I ask you, Brett, did you take the missing $500. If you're truthful, the facts stand on their own and you would simply say, no, I didn't take the money. That's, that's all you have to do. But oftentimes, if you're lying, uh, you feel the urge to now try to manage my perception of you and go beyond the simple no and then sprinkle in what we call these convincing statements Things like, why would I take $500? I'm well paid. I have no reason to take $500. I wasn't raised that way. I'm an honest person. So you've gone beyond conveying information to now trying to convince me of your innocence. You also, in the book, you highlight like a call to God, like, you know, calling upon, you know, I swear to God or I'm a religious guy. That's in that same bucket. Exactly. That, that's a, a classic example of, of the persuasion bucket where they're now invoking religion. Uh, they're using God as a third party witness to uh, bolster their stance in, in uh, attempting to lead us to believe they're not the type of person that would do something like this. So there's the evasion bucket, there's the persuasion bucket. What were the other two? The manipulation bucket, this is where they try to control or manipulate the process. They, they try to disrupt our game plan as interviewers. They will do things like repeat the question. This is another reason for the cluster rule. We know that truthful people will sometimes repeat questions. So just because somebody exhibits an isolated, single deceptive behavior, uh, we're, we're not going to leap to the conclusion that the person's lying to us. But if we see two or more deceptive indicators in response to a question, then, of course, uh, we're, we're going to be concerned. But getting back to repeating the question, lying takes quite a bit of mental energy to, to pull it off. So when I ask you, Brett, did you take the missing $500, the first decision you have to make is, do I lie or do I tell the truth? And, and so all these things take time. So in order to control the process, I, I the liar, I need think time. I need to buy some time. So by, by repeating the question, I'm now buying myself 
I'm, 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 I'm bridging that gap of silence rather than just sitting there. When I ask, did you take the missing $500 and you, you just sit there as you ponder whether to lie or tell the truth, uh, since you know that's so obvious, uh, by, by bridging that gap, repeating the question by saying, did I take the missing $500? You've just bought yourself some talk time. And so uh, repeating the question does that. It, it's what we call a mask for the, oh, my God moment. What do I do? Do I tell the truth? Do I lie? So repeating the question. Or another very similar thing that people d- will do under the manipulation bucket is to use what we call a non-answer statement. Things like, that's a good question, or why are you asking me that? Again, you are buying time. You're giving yourself think time to formulate an answer. Is, um, you gave the example of Bill Clinton in the book, his famous, what's the definition of is, is. Is that a manipulation? Yes, that, that, that is. We, we see this often with well-educated people who, who will wordsmith. They will attempt to get us to change the scope of our question, to narrow the scope so that they can now provide a truthful answer. So by saying depends upon what the meaning of the word is, is, is a way of, of doing exactly that. So uh, we got evasion, persuasion, manipulation. What's the fourth? Aggression. Aggression. And we see the aggression behavior often when the stakes are extremely high or the person that we're uh, interviewing or talking to feels extremely threatened. We see this often in the political world where, where these people, you know, there's just a ton of consequences associated with some of the things that, you know, have been surfacing recently. And the, the, the psychology behind the aggression bucket is the person being asked the question becomes aggressive in the hope that they will get the interviewer to back off. So by, by when they feel cornered by a question, the hope is, I want this line of questioning to go away. And we will often see interviewers on television, for example, uh, or reporters, once this politician, celebrity, criminal, whoever it is that's being talked to on television, feels cornered, uh, they, they, they begin to attack the interviewer and belittle or impeach the credibility of the interviewer themselves in the hope that now the interviewer will discontinue that line of questioning. Great. And you gave some great examples in the book of that, that happening. So you encourage people to go check that out. So all these behavioral and verbal clusters, they're all dependent upon the stimulus. So that means you have to ask the right sort of question. Before we talk about what are the, you know, what sort of questions you should ask, what are some questions you should avoid that will give you, basically you're playing in the hands of the, the person manipulating you or deceiving yeah. you. A person's ability to detect deception is dependent upon their ability to ask good questions. Because if you ask bad questions, you, for example, if, if you ask a ambiguous, confusing question, you're going to get ambiguous, confusing behavior, and you won't be able to detect deception. Another example of a, a, a poorly phrased question would be what we call a negative question. Uh, if I asked you, Brett, you didn't take the $500, did you? 
it would be so easy for you now to say, no, I didn't take the $500 because I'm, I'm telegraphing to you that I'm expecting you to say, no, you didn't take the $500. So we want to avoid negative questions. We want to avoid compound questions. Where were you last night and what were you doing? The deceptive person can choose to answer one part of the question and just conveniently not answer the second part of the question. So so those would be other examples. And we, we want to make sure that the questions we ask are short, single meaning, concise questions. The shorter the question, the clearer the stimulus, the, the easier it is for us to evaluate the behavior. And just one, one final point on uh, uh, questioning. We want to make sure that we ask the question in a very low key non-accusatory manner. If if I'm aggressive and heavy-handed with my question and very assertive, just my demeanor alone could cause deceptive behavior from a truthful person because they're, react, they're reacting to my tone rather than to the words of, of my question. Yeah, and you g- gave some really good examples of that in the book. I love the example where I think it was Phil was interviewing someone and for some position and the guy admitted, you know, just through, you know, Phil was very low key, very amiable, you know, wasn't, wasn't aggressive. And throughout the process of the interview, this guy opened up and confessed that he committed all these crimes that, you know, basically made him ineligible for this job. And at the end of the interview, the guy said, when will I know when I, if I'll get the job or not? And because like Phil didn't let on at all that, you know, like, this is bad that you did these things. He was like completely non-judgmental, just getting that information from him. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly the approach we use in, during an interview and also during uh, what we would call the, the non-coercive uh, interrogation process. If, if you think about what, what our life work has been, it's really about information collection and to be able to obtain both a high quantity and quality of information, you have to really be good at three separate skill sets. One is, of course, asking good questions. The second would be detecting deception. And that's what our first book, Spy the Lie, is all about. And then our second book that's called Get the Truth gets into this third skill set. And that is, how do you get someone that you know is lying to you to provide that incriminating information? And to your point, it, it involves being very low key and and under the radar, right? So you don't want to do any of the aha. <laughs> you just you just pretty much keep going on with the questions once you spot that. Yeah, deception. The, the the last thing we want to do is come across as judgmental. We're not the judge and jury, and so our our whole mission is to be under the radar, low key, non judgmental. We want that person to feel comfortable in confiding, to, you know, to us. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more our listeners can learn. you got a second book out. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, they can either go to our website, qverity.com, where we will, from time to time, have analysis of people in the news, politicians and celebrities who have been accused of things. Uh, we, we do have analysis there where they can practice and see what, what our uh, opinions have been over over the years on people in the news. And then the book Spy the Lie is, is a great resource, along with now our second book, Get the Truth. So those would be the, the resources that I would recommend. Well, Michael Floyd, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Thank you very much.
My guest today was Michael Floyd. He's the author of the book, Spy the Lie. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at qverity.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash spythelie, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast service you use. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please share the podcast with your friends. Word of mouth is how this show grows. The more, the merrier. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.